0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. You came back. Yay. Yay! Yay! You're here. Beautiful. So you know, and as we were singing that song, "So will I," you know that song always brings up in me was something I heard one time that you know all of the universe, all of God's creation, everything bows to Him in obedience and praise. Right? Everything works as it should, and then it comes to us, his prized possession, the apple of his eye, and we have the audacity to say no, right? So let that be our prayer today. Let that be our praise, that no matter what, today is going to be a yes day. Today is going to be a day where I say, I will praise him no matter what. Amen? This is no ordinary day. Right? I say that all the time. This is no ordinary day because there's no such thing as ordinary in the kingdom of God. There's no such thing as ordinary when a bunch of dead people have been made alive and are walking around with the spirit of God in them. Amen? And so there's, this is no ordinary day. And it's not because it's Super Bowl Sunday. The Patriots aren't in it, so it doesn't even matter. Right? No, I'm just kidding. But it's just no ordinary day. And so there's some questions I want to present to you this morning before I get started. And I want you to sort of, you know, keep these in the back of your mind as, as, I, as I go through this word today. But the first one is, is your faith changing you? Is your faith transforming your life? Right? Are you being transformed and recreated into the image of Jesus? Do you see that happening? And then the last thing I want you to ask yourself is this, is how do the people you encounter on a daily basis recognize you? Who do they see? How do they recognize you? And that's the title today of my sermon is how are you recognized? And we're gonna go into Acts chapter four and talk about a scenario here about recognition in Christ. See, if people only know you're a Christian, right? They only know because maybe you wear those shirts You know, those really cool ones where they turn a phrase into a Christian phrase. It's real catchy and conversational. And we sell some, right? But if they only know because of your bumper sticker or because of how you talk or because you've told them, I'm a Christian, or you've told them, I don't believe in this and I don't believe in that, and all they've ever had is bad experiences with Christians, then you've lost their audience and this ability to speak into their lives. Have you ever noticed that? And our theme this year, and what we've been talking about, is God calls us to go. And the only way that that's effective is if we have people to go to, right? And so I want us to think about this. If you live out your faith authentically before people, before a watching world, then you will be identified by your fruit. And that could cause them to question their perception of Christianity altogether. We don't represent a religion, church. We, rep- we represent Jesus. And so as we go about our days, from the moment we wake up to the moment we lay down our heads, everything we do, wherever we go, whether you're in the gym, whether you're at the, the doctors, you're at work, you're at home, you're in the grocery store, it does not matter. You do not check out. You are an ambassador. You are a representation of the living God, Jesus Christ, because his spirit is in you. And he's giving you his word. And so our job is to live that out accordingly. We struggle with that. And there's a good reason why we get a bad rap. So let's look at this. You know, we talked about last week what hypocrisy looks like in the church. Let's move from hypocrisy to sincerity, authenticity, to the love of Christ, embracing the fact that just because someone doesn't believe what we believe yet doesn't mean that we weren't there once at one point, too that we needed to be loved back to life, right? I was just talking to someone yesterday, right, brother? We were talking about how, you know, sometimes what we do is, is we ostracize people because we think like we've moved beyond a certain place in our lives and we start to look down our nose at other people where they're still in their struggle. And maybe it's a struggle we can even identify with or know somebody. And I always think, you know, who did I need When I was at my lowest point, who did I need when I was still caught up in the world and with my sin? I didn't need some religious people person pointing a finger at me and telling me all the things I was doing wrong. I knew what I was doing wrong. Make no mistake. That's why I lied all the time. What I needed to know was that I could be forgiven, that I could be made new, that I could be transformed, that there was a way for someone like me to not be sentenced to life in that prison. So who do we need to be? How are people recognize us matters, right? So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says, we are ambassadors for Christ. And I love the second part of this. It says, as though, we, as though God were making an appeal through us. Not making an appeal to us, but through us as ambassadors. That wherever we go, he is appealing to the people around us if we only live ready if we only live ready. And that's our call, not to live religiously, not to watch our mouths and say all the right things and vote the right way. Because that's what Christianity has become for a lot of people, hasn't it? Election year, ugh. It's like, God, help us. But even more reason and even better opportunity for us to shine our light in the darkness. Let's do that. Let's allow God to make his appeal through us See, Paul's saying God's appealing to others through us who are Christ so that we will represent him well and because how we represent him matters. It matters, right? How we are recognized means something. It's how people are going to identify him and the church. And so, I mean, in an easy word, I could just say we need to stop being jerks. But more so, we need to be more like him. And so that's what I want to talk about today. See, I've heard it said that it's impossible to have an encounter with the true Christ and walk away the same. And I would agree with that. I would agree with that on, on multiple levels, but I'm going to just speak from a personal one for, for a moment here. You know, I spent uh, 11 years in the church, and, and prior to my final surrender of near death and addiction and all that fun stuff. But I'm going to tell you, for 11 years, I tried in vain so hard to be like the people who were attending that place. Like, I thought that that's what this was, is if I could just learn to behave better and present myself as well as these other people, then I'd be all set. If I could be a husband like him or a father like that guy, if I could be a man like those guys, Right? If I could remember you know, scripture and I could, I could speak it fluently, then I would have it all figured out. And you know what happened? It backfired on me. What ended up happening is, is the more I tried to be like other people and to pretend to be like other people, the more I failed and more discouraged I got. And the more ostracized I felt, the more separated and divided and lost and I felt like, man, I am just a failure. I'll never get this. Maybe this Jesus thing isn't for me. And it just made things worse. Religion did nothing for me, but Jesus did everything. Amen. That's what we have to remember is who we represent, not what we represent. In our identity and how we are recognized, it's whose we are, not who we are right? It's who he is. We spend so much time. Look at me. Look at how much I've done. Look at how much I've overcome. And we waste time and we waste opportunity with those conversations, don't we? We see in Acts four where Peter and John find themselves in hot water. They had to stand before the Sanhedrin after healing a man and preaching the gospel. And so just to give you a little context before I start here and, and read this portion of Scripture, I want you to just think this Peter and John story that we're going to read about, it really begins at Pentecost for them. I mean, it had been going on for a while, but really this, the, the hinge pin here is really at, at Pentecost when the Spirit of God was just poured out on the apostles and they were filled, it says, with his power. I want you to think about it. Bring yourself into that moment. Picture it. Be there with them. In that upper room, when the Holy Spirit came like fire and filled them so that they could go and preach the gospel in multiple different languages, so that the people who had made the pilgrimage there to Jerusalem could hear the gospel in their own language, their native tongue. And so many were saved, and the power of God was moving, and God was capitalizing on a Jewish holiday, a celebration. Everything timed perfectly, the spirit of God moving powerfully, right? And so Peter and John, you know, they just get done with this episode and now they're going to go to the temple to pray one day. It's around three o'clock in the afternoon, it says, and they approach this temple gate called Beautiful. They encounter a man being carried to the gate on a stretcher and he's being laid down there as a beggar, a crippled man, and he's a beggar. And we see this in the story of Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, who who sat by the road all day. And when Jesus was passing by, he didn't miss his opportunity, no matter what anybody said. Cried out, and he found sight that day. We see this throughout the scriptures, that people are sort of, you know, slaves to their flesh and slaves to the people around them, dependent on them to survive. Without people giving, they would die. They would perish. And so their friends bring him out to these places. And so this guy, is a fixture outside this gate called Beautiful, right? He had been born lame, it says, and he had been that way for over 40 years. We're going to get into that. And he asked them for money as they approached. And he received so much more. And if we could only see things that way, as we ask for things that we don't actually need, we ask for God for things that we want, and we chase after things that we want, when all we need to really do is seek God for what we need. Acts chapter 3, verse 6, it says this. Peter says to the man, silver or gold, I have none. I'm broke, buddy. Right? But what I do have, I give you. And then he says something powerful and miraculous. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. All this guy was asking for was money. And he gets up and he walks for the first time in his life. The spectacle of this man clinging to Peter and John. Can you imagine the joy? Can you imagine the celebration? And it draws some attention because, you know, he walks into the gate with them, and it says that he's leaping and walking and praising God. Everybody knows this guy. They must have walked by him thousands of times over the past several decades. And so now here he is jumping and leaping and praising the Lord, and he's with those two Jesus people. He's with those two guys that were saying and doing all that stuff. And so the crowd starts to form because of this thing. And so Peter, he capitalizes on this miracle and this opportunity, and he begins to preach the gospel to the masses. What I love about this is that Peter and John, and I say this all the time, is live ready Live ready. A lot of us, we live complacently if we're being honest. We've carved out a comfortable rut. We've created a nice comfortable group of friends. We speak in echo chambers. We love to hear our points reconfirmed and spoken back to us. And there's no real difficulty in our lives at this point. And God forbid someone make fun of my religion or my politics That's not who Christ has called us to be. Peter and John were completely radically transformed, and they're walking to go do their thing, and God interrupts them. And because they were living ready, something miraculous happened that day. Many things happened that day. So let's read Acts chapter 4 and see where we're at here. Starting in verse 1, it says this. It says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, important, came up to them. They were greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This is a problem. First of all, Sadducees do not believe in resurrection at all. And, and, and now this has become a disruptive scene, as we're going to see here, because this isn't just a couple hundred people or, or a thousand people even. This is how big the temple is. This is how big the community is that they walked into and got their attention. It says, and then they laid hands on them, and they don't mean in prayer... And they put them in jail until the next day because it was already evening. Important statement there. They went around 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and now it was already evening. This has been going on. They're preaching the gospel. People are gathering. This has become an ongoing event. We complain like, oh, man, pastor preached a little long today. I'm going to miss the brunch at such and such. But back then, man, it was common to preach for hours from morning, noon, till night. Paul preached people to death. They fell out of windows and fell asleep. So don't complain, all right? (laughs) But I want you to think about this. It's already evening now, and it says, many, though, who had heard the message believed. There it is. And it says, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. There's an operative, there's a key word in here. The number of the men. That's how they identified families back then. This isn't this chauvinistic perspective or or, a cultural issue. What what this is, is this is God's design, and we'll talk more about this. But the men represented couples, represented families. So if it was 5,000 men... And let's say the average family is 2.4, is it? I don't know. could be over 10,000 people came to know the Lord that day because Peter and John lived ready. It says, on the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest who was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and it says, and all who were of high priestly descent. This is a big deal. Let's get all the bigwigs in here. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire or badger or interrogate. By what power and what name have you done this? And I love this. Peter says this. And and, and I love how Luke doesn't omit this important little statement before Peter's statement. He says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. That's an important piece. Not then Peter filled with arrogance and pride and knowledge and confidence. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter, who had the big mouth and said all the dumb things, Filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to this sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. I want you to just think about this for a moment. They just were jailed. They had recently seen Jesus killed, right? They know that what they're doing is not acceptable and it's not okay. And now they're standing before the same council that put Jesus on the cross. And instead of saying, I did this, I'm powerful. I'm a man of God. I do this because I'm anointed, because God has chosen me. What does he say? He says, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, it's by his name this man stands here before you in good health. Not by the name of Peter, not by the name of John, not by the name of Jamie or any other name. By the name of Jesus. And he goes on to say, and I love this because this is what Jesus used to do. He would bring back the prophecy and throw it right back at the religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, he says, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Man, he spoke boldly. He spoke confidently, but not on his own. He was filled with the spirit of God as we need to be filled with the spirit of God. When we're empowered by God and when we go for God, he will ordain our steps. That's something we need to remember. I think a lot of times fear overtakes us, embarrassment, shame, right? I don't know how they're going to receive this. I don't want to look stupid. I don't want to sound foolish, right? We're afraid of how people will look at us. We don't care as much about how God thinks of us though. But when we go for him and when we're empowered by him, he's going to ordain your steps. He's going to use you in power. He's going to use you to change lives. See, the Lord created this scenario through a perfectly timed miracle in the most effective setting, right? See, what what God does first and what he's been working on since long before we came about, meaning humans, he fills Peter and John with the Holy Spirit, right? Then he directs them to the temple for prayer. And it's important we see it that way. Because yes, there is a part in this that we work cooperatively with the Spirit of God. We are called to obedience, meaning we can also be disobedient. But I'm going to tell you something. The reason every single one of you are here this morning is not because of how good you are or because you decided, who had a hard time this morning? I ah, I don't know if I'm going to go to church. It's beautiful out. I love honest people. Thank you. Awesome. All right, get out. No, I'm just kidding. So I want you to think about this. The fact that you're here, though, is because the spirit of God in you said, no, go. Amen. The spirit of God has made you even desire to be here. Because otherwise, this is all foolishness to you. Otherwise, there's nothing here for you. It's forced. It's got no power. And I'm just some little guy talking about some God you don't really care about. Someone laughed when I said, little? It's all right. It's all right. I didn't just wake up like this today, just so you know. It's been a lifelong thing. But this is, this is the point, is that Peter and John thought, I'm just going to go to church now. Great things are happening. Come on, let's go to temple. Let's go pray. Right? I'm going to go to church. And this is what happens with us, is sometimes we show up, and if we're ready, we will receive something powerful. We will see something miraculous. The problem is, is a lot of times we're not ready. Peter and John were ready. And so when they came across this man whom they probably walked by, I don't know, thousands of times, they look at him and he says, listen, man, I have no money, but I got something so much better for you. And he says, get up, walk. And they thought, you know, that was the miracle of the day. I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like for Peter and John? I don't know about you, but if I was walking by someone outside a market basket and, you know, I saw them hung up on 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 a stretcher or something... And they were asking me for money. And I say, you know, I don't have any cash. I only use debit because that's the excuse we all use, right? And then you say, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And that guy or that woman got up and walked. How would you feel after that? How would you? You'd be like, what just happened? What just happened? And they came walking in the store with you. Praising the Lord and walking. Everybody was like, hey, isn't that the guy that was just outside, faker? (laughs) Because that's what we do, right? But my point is, is that Peter and John just experienced this thing and the power of the Holy Spirit has overwhelmed them. The power of the Spirit of God is in them. And a man who who was lame was just made able to walk and now they walk into the temple with him and they're probably like, check this out. This is what my God can do. And it's just like those, those uh, infomercials, you know? But wait, there's more. God's like, yeah, don't get hung up on that, guys. This is just part of a bigger plan I had for today. And so when we live ready, what might seem like oper- uh, excuse me interruptions along the way and during our day may actually become opportunities. Right? You guys, a drive around to Bedford. You know how annoying it is. Construction on just about every other street, detours here and there. You're running a little bit late, and all of a sudden you get rerouted all the way around Buttonwood Park. Sounds personal, right? I know. You're you're coming down 140, and all of a sudden you know you're in the passing lane, and someone pulls out in front of you going 50, and they don't get out of your way. What do we do? Rearrendum. You could do that. That's one way to handle it. Shine your headlight for Christ. So uh, a lot of times, and I do this, and we all do this, we get frustrated because I'm going to rush. i got somewhere to be. i got to go do stuff. And what we don't realize is these interruptions that are happening throughout the day like these are actually God's interrupting us. Maybe he's protecting us from something. Maybe there's something that we need to do or ought to be doing that we're not paying attention to. Maybe needs a little more time with us that morning. Maybe we need to pray. Maybe before we get so busy, we need to just stop and realize who we are in Christ. And so God uses this moment not only to get people's attention and prove his power, but also to create an audience for Peter to preach the gospel. Because that's the biggest thing here today it always was and it always will be it's the biggest most important thing in this room today is that the gospel is preached the truth of the word is preached not that my opinion or my take on scripture is more important it's nothing the only thing that matters is if i preach the power in the power of god by the word of god and allow him to deal with your hearts And when I shrink back from that obligation and duty, I'm doing you a disservice. I'm not loving you and I'm not honoring God and that's sinful and shameful and I don't belong to be up here in front of this pulpit. Period. My opinions mean nothing. Political opinions, opinions about theology, all that stuff means nothing unless the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached first and foremost. And so... What was the result of this amazing ordination that God created this day? It led to the saving of 5,000 men. 5,000, not 500. We see 500 here roughly on a Sunday. That's a lot of people. I mean, there's a lot of you here in this room. But ultimately, I want you to think about 5,000 people in one moment, in one day, came to know the Lord because of two obedient men filled with the Spirit of God who lived ready. Can you imagine what He could do if the room full of people here walked in obedience to the Spirit of God and lived ready all day, every day? Wow. Let's think about that. Let that pierce our hearts. See, it wasn't because they had arranged some spectacular event or service. No. It wasn't because they promoted it all over Facebook or or Instagram or TikTok or... I don't know. I lost all of them. I'm sorry. You know what I mean. It was because they lived ready and the Spirit of God had ordained and prepared it. And oftentimes what we do is, is we try to create a scenario... Right? Manipulate the the Spirit of God, the mood, the emotion. And really, all God is telling us to do is to be obedient and allow the Spirit of God to do what only the Spirit of God can do. I don't care how eloquent you are. I don't care how convincing you are. I don't care how articulate or intelligent. What I care about is that you're obedient and that you allow the Spirit of God to minister to heart, to use you, to speak through you, and to receive what it is he has for you. That's it. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's beautiful to have a place to worship. What a blessing, what a privilege. So many people around the world don't have it. But if this becomes the apex of your Christianity, hanging out here for an hour on Sunday morning and the rest of the week from Monday to Saturday, you don't do anything different or anything more for the kingdom, then what are you doing? What are you doing? You're playing church. See, here's the problem. Most of the church, and this is another conversation we had yesterday. Thanks for your conversation yesterday, brother. I appreciate it. Most of the church is filled with spectators. It's a hard thing to hear, right? And I'm not, this isn't an indictment against this body in particular. I'm telling you that this is a common thing that, that most churches are filled with spectators that, you know, we talk about the 80-20 rule, right? 20% of the people do 100% of the work and the other 80% just show up. And if I don't say these things, then they aren't brought to anybody's attention and we're going to keep slipping in and out of these doors and we're going to keep pretending that this is all we need to do to follow Jesus, See, each of us, every single person in this room, not just the pastor, not just the worship leader, not just the deacons, the elders, the ushers, and the people who work or serve here regularly. Every single person who hears this voice today, who is in this room as part of this body, and a larger body, the universal church, are responsible to move beyond spectatorship. That is your job. That is your calling. Jesus never says for us to come and sit and be comfortable." He never says, "Come and be an audience to Christianity." He never says, "Come and find a place that you're not too challenged that meets all your basic needs." A lot of times, and I see this all the time, actually, over the years, and it's sad. it really is that, that you know, we, we leave churches and we bounce from church to church for the silliest reasons. Now, there are definitely valid reasons to move from one body to another, right? There are valid reasons, and I don't want to negate those, but those aren't the ones I'm talking about today. I'm addressing the ones that usually come out as the chairs aren't comfortable enough, or the pastor preaches too long, or the music's too loud, or it's too soft, or he doesn't sing well, or she can't play the guitar, right? Oh, I wish the lights were brighter. I wish they were dimmer, right? Smells funny in there. People hug too much. You have no idea the stuff we hear. You would, I, I honestly said we should write a book and keep a list of all the excuses because it's hilarious because none of it has to do with Jesus. 99% of it. It's all a justification. It's usually a lie. And let me explain that a little bit more. Because if you've gotten to a place where the chairs are the reason you're leaving, or the volume is the reason you're leaving, you have already slid away from Christ and missed your main reason as why God brought you here in the first place. If we're in a place of criticism, and we're in a place where nothing is good enough for us, or we're finding the little details that aren't right, Rather than the bigger, more important stuff, can you imagine if somebody said to Paul, Paul, I'm sorry, but I can't keep coming to your sermons because you talk too much. You I think mean, Paul would chase him out the door? Hey, we need our committee, our follow-up committee to get out there, and we want to make sure that they come back, offer them something. Bye. you're not doing me a favor. Paul's like, I'm here to do you a favor. I'm giving you the words of eternal life. I'm coming here to tell you that you are dead and now you can be alive. And so that's all this is about. It's not about your seats, your comfort, your volume, or anything else. It's all about Christ and him crucified. See, when you move from spectatorship, when you don't see yourself as an audience that needs to be entertained anymore, Then you start to realize you have a role, and you start to read the Bible, Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, you see how it says that every single one of us has a place and a part and a role in the body, and it's not for you. It's not about coming here to get your needs met. Sure, at the beginning, that's what it is, because you're broken and you're lost, and you need a Savior and you find a loving body, you find a people who will embrace you, who've been where you are, who have testimonies that speak to your life. And so you show up and you start to say, I found the place, I found my family. But as you progress, that should happen less and less. It should be more about what can I do? What is my role here? What is God calling me to? Where is there opportunity? Not, I don't like that so much. Kids' church, eh, they're brats. You know, teen ministry, no way. I like to sing in the shower. Maybe I'll get on the worship team. Stay in the shower. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I just want you to think about this. You know, we have... So many gifts and abilities in this room right here. So many people who have the ability to serve the body well. And what we're doing is, is we're sitting and laying in wait for an opportunity that may never arise because we aren't going out there and getting it. There are tons. If you see as many people here, then you know that there's, that means all the more need. That means more kids. That means more studies, more discipleship. And So what do we do? What do we do? So this is going to lead us, you know, one way or another. Either we're going to see responsibility and we're going to rise up and we're going to see holes and needs and we're going to do something or we're going to leave and not come back because the pastor was mean last week. I told you, I'm not here to make you like me. I do love you. And that's why I say what I say. We need to surrender ourselves to a process of spiritual growth and not ascribe to a life of Christianity light, I call it. I want to read what it says in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. And it speaks to this very thing. The the writer of Hebrews says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, by now you've been coming here long enough. You've been involved and connected to this body long enough. You ought to be teachers, leaders of the faith. He says, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles or the word of God. He goes on to say, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of of righteousness, since he is a child, since he is an infant, it says in some translations. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What is your spiritual diet these days, church? Are you or have you moved to solid food yet? Is it time? Is it time? Some of us have been doing this dance for too long. Some of us know what the word says, but we don't do what the word says. Some of us need to be poked and prodded a little bit and confronted a little bit. See, Once we're bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and sealed with the Holy Spirit, then we should be active participants in our growth and sanctification process. That should be the result. I'm going to share an email that I sent to the men's ministry leaders and pastors this week. And I'm going to share why first. So a couple days ago, after two days of waking up way too early for no reason, God waking me up, dealing with me, you know, there's... I see all this great things that are happening. I see the growth in the church. I see the spiritual growth, right? I see the the people, you know, digging in and going deeper. I see what Pastor Brian is going through and how it spurred a lot of people on and the encouragement and what it's doing in him and his family. And I see what it's doing in me and the people around us. I see all that. And that's all good. And there's great things happening. So don't hear me saying that we're missing the mark here. What I'm saying is, is that we're, we're, we're imperfect. We know we're imperfect, so this shouldn't come to a shock, as a shock to anyone. But I sent this email to them, and I said, guys, it's been really on my heart, and I don't know who else to bring this to, but I don't want to hold this on to this by myself alone because I really believe it's the Holy Spirit. And every time I go up here on a Sunday, I stand out and I say, there's so many spectators in the church, and we're missing something. How do we engage people at a deeper, more sincere level, at an authentic level where we can draw them in to get them more engaged, to get them more involved, to live more deeply, more seriously, more committed lives for Jesus Christ? That was my appeal to them. Can we get together and talk about this? Can we look harder at this? Because, you know, we have men's group on Monday nights, but we only have a dozen guys show up for that, right? We have Wednesday nights... But you know, the majority of that crowd is women. There's some guys. But I'm just telling you that I see more women than men showing up to things. And I see men, you know, not digging in as deeply as they should. And that saddens me, because I'm gonna tell you this. When you build strong men in Christ, the result is strong husbands, strong fathers, which leads to strong families, which will then eventually lead to a stronger church, right? That's why in this word, it says 5,000 men were saved that day. The representation. It says, statistically, the Barn Report comes out and says that when a woman gets saved, 24 or 27% of the time, roughly, their families will come with them to church. Okay. On the flip side of that coin, when a man gets saved... 92 or 94% of the time their family comes with them. We have an influence, men. We have an obligation, men. And we need to strap up, go deeper, press in, get more engaged, get more involved. Because what's most important is not how busy we are and how much money we make, right? It's great. We provide for our families and that's important. But if we're not providing for them spiritually first, then guess what? We're missing the mark and we stand before the Lord one day and we have to answer for that. Oh, great. Your bank account's healthy. How about your family's spiritual health? Did you lead them to me? Did you tell them about me? Did you live for me so that they could visibly see that on a daily basis? Because that's what this is all about. Otherwise, again, we're just playing church, an Americanized version of what biblical Christianity is really supposed to be. And Jesus never says anything of the like that you just show up on a Sunday or or that you you just let your family go because you're too busy or that as long as you're making enough money and everybody's eating in the house and they have a roof over their head, then you're good. Nope. As a matter of fact, he called the rich young ruler away from his wealth sell everything you own, get rid of it all and come follow me, because he knew that man was owned by his money. He knew that man, that 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 success that he had was more important to him than his spiritual health and life. He told people, you know, that said, hey, I'm going to come follow you, but, you know, you you know, my dad died. I got to go bury him. He said, let the dead bury their own. Can I go and say bye to my family? He says, "No. Nobody who puts their hands to the plow is fit for my kingdom if they start looking back." Wow, Jesus, it's a little harsh. Because he knows the importance of this—that this supersedes all the things that we've made a priority, that we've idolized in our lives, and we've made it okay, and we've justified it through a churchy lens—and that's a problem. And we're not holding each other accountable to that. And we're not confronting each other and challenging each other and reminding each other that this is what the word of God says. Do you remember that profession you made, brother? Do you remember when you got baptized, brother? Do you remember? You've fallen away. You're in, a, you're in neutral. God wants more for you and your family. We're called to be all in, every single one of us. So you're not off the hook, ladies. But I want you to turn to your neighbor, turn to someone near you, and only if you're ready to go all in, only if you mean it, I want you to say to them, I'm all in. talk about being put on the spot, huh? (laughs) All right, lock the doors. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm all in. That's going to mean something. I'm all in for Jesus. I'm all in for this life with him. I'm all in for discipleship. I'm all in to do whatever it takes to become the man or the woman that he's called me to be, to be the father, to be the husband, to be the employee, to be the boss. I am all in. That's where we need to be. See, when we go for God and allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through us, then miraculous things will happen. And it may not look like a guy getting up off of a mat outside of a gate. What it may look like is a life being changed. What it may look like is an addict coming away delivered from drugs and alcohol. What it may look like is a restored family and marriage What it may look like is someone's eternity rerouted and their lives transformed radically because of the blood and glory and power of of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Those are the miracles we fight for. Those are the miracles we see. We should be excited by those miracles. Some of us, as I said earlier, are gonna stand in front of the TV tonight if you're a Niners or a KC fan, right, Danny? And what's gonna happen is is when they, you know, when they fumble or, or, or score a touchdown or whatever it is, you're going to jump. Oh my God, I can't believe he did that. Or they're going to score a touchdown and you're going to jump and you're going to hug each other. Yeah. And the game's going to in, in invoke all of this excitement in you in response. And all it is is a bunch of overpaid, overpaid men playing a game. Enjoy it. But if you can show passion for that, I'm going to tell you what my God does. The next day after this incident at the temple, the Sanhedrin called for Peter and John, right? They get called into the principal's office. I don't know about you, but that was never good for me. The worst was when you didn't know what you did wrong. You know what I'm talking about? And you're thinking, oh boy, which thing did they find out? (laughs) And you're already concocting a defense, right? So they knew. And it wasn't that way for John and Peter, no. Not only did over 5,000 people get saved that day, but now the Sanhedrin is absolutely shook. Because they thought killing Jesus was going to put an end to this movement, and all it did was amplify it. All it did was spread it even further. There must be something real about this. They just saw a miracle. And so I'm going to do what Jesus called me to do. And now I'm in trouble for it is not a valid excuse. It's not a claim to unfairness because that distraction, that detour or whatever we're calling it actually is an opportunity when we're wrapped up in Christ See, often what we see as setbacks and opportunities are God-ordained, right? So this allows Peter and John to tell these religious leaders that put Jesus on the cross just exactly who he is. They said, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And it's funny because this is a reference from a prophecy that they're familiar with. It comes out of Psalm 118, verse 22. They're familiar with these words and they're throwing it right back at them just like Jesus used to do. I am he. What is truth? Me. You're looking at it. And so now they're confronted once again. And don't think for a minute that God didn't ordain this either. God is confronting the Sanhedrin through Peter and John. God is confronting all people through Peter and John and through the spirit of God. And so let's go back into Acts chapter four and just read from 13 on now. And it says... Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were fools. They were nobodies from Nazareth. It says they became amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. They were confounded by fools. They were being shamed by the weak. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them It says, they had nothing to say in reply. They were were speechless. And when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what are we going to do with these men? What are we going to do about this? For the fact of a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. Not just us, but everybody knows what just happened, and we can't deny it. That's what they're saying. This is big trouble for the Sanhedrin. And these two guys, who are they? But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer about this man and his name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And I love this response. Peter and John answered and said to them, "Whether it is right to, in the sight of God to heed you to, to, take, to give heed to you, excuse me, rather than God, you decide. You be the judge of that." He says, "But we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard." go back to what I said. When you have an encounter with the living God, you do not walk away the same. And those of you in this room who know what I'm talking about, who have had an encounter with Jesus, know this excitement and passion that Peter and John have in this moment. He says, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen or heard because it's true because his power And when they had threatened them further, they ended up letting them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Can you imagine? They go back to all their people like, hey, you're never going to guess what happened. I don't know about you, but there's moments in ministry where I go out on outreach or something happens. I can't wait to tell my brothers and sisters in Christ what has happened. You would never believe this. And that's what's happening here. And so when they tell them the story, when they hear this, it says, they lifted their voices to God, and with one accord they said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by this Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's devise devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. All the bad that happened, not just the good, were all things that you predestined to happen, Lord. Because you are provident. You are sovereign, We are just pawns. We are just instruments in your mighty hand. And if we walk obediently and allow the Spirit of God to use us, mighty things will happen, and we get to be part of his story. And it says, And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants, your slaves, may speak your word with confidence while you extend your hand to heal and the signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then when they prayed, I love this part, it says the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Man, I want that. I want us all with one accord to just confidently press in and allow the, the, the prayers and the praise and our worship To draw us closer together in him so that this whole place would shake. That the power of God would embolden us. Not just here in this room, but outside of these four walls where it's more important. Because the world needs to know. When we truly live for Jesus, we'll be recognized as his church. Verse 13, it says, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. I mean, is there any greater compliment under the sun? Is there any greater compliment to someone look at your life and go, it's obvious you've been with Jesus? See, when you know who you are, you know what to do and you know how to live. Your identity will define how you move and operate. So it's vital that we establish this identity in Christ and are directed by the word of God. See, we all love the idea of having a special calling or purpose, don't we? Let's be honest. I know you're all like, "Uh uh-oh, he's going to say something. It's a trap. But we do. We all love this idea of having a special calling or purpose. I see people saying it all the time. I hear it. And I think that's one reason why people love Jeremiah 29, 11 so much. Someone's going to go, all right, that's it. This is my last day here. <laughs> but I just, it does upset a few people, but hear me out. See, it says, for I know the plans I have for you. And then it says to prosper and to not to harm you. And we love hearing that. I want to know that God has plans for me. I want to know that he's going to prosper me. And I know he's going to protect me. I want to hear that. See, we like to read that from this personal perspective. But context is so important when we read scripture. Isn't it, church? We can't just pull a verse out that sounds good and say, yep, that's my motto. I stand on this verse. Because you might be talking about something completely foolish that does not pertain to you. And if you talk to someone who knows the word of God, they're going to see right through that. But more importantly, if we're standing on the truth on the word of God, then what we need to cling to are things more like what Pastor Prilly, Pastor Prilly, sorry, Pastor Prilly, that's his new nickname. Pastor Willie prayed. That was kind of hard to say. You have to give me that. Sorry, Prilly. So he said, he, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let us celebrate that. You know, when, when you read Jeremiah 29, God's speaking to Israel through Jeremiah while they were exiled in Babylon. So unless you're an, you're, you're an Israelite thousands of years ago, exiled in Babylon, this doesn't necessarily pertain to you because what he's saying is, is, is he's going back and reminding his chosen people of the covenant he had made with them. And there was a plan and purpose for those people. So he's not speaking. When he says you, he's talking to Israel. He's talking to his people. And he's saying, so I know that this seems like it's taking forever. And, you know, there's other false prophets who came and and, and they said, don't worry. It's going to end soon. And it kept going on and it kept going on. And so he says, don't worry. I have plans to prosper you as a nation. That is going to happen. I keep my promises. This is not a personal promise to me or you. It's important that we know the word so that we can stand rightly on it. The full counsel of God, right? What we often miss is that our purposes are God-centered, that they're supposed to be God-centered, but we're always looking for these me-centered purposes, aren't we? How does God want to use me? What's he calling me to? Let me tell you this. He's calling all of us to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to get closer, to be part of the body, to show up, to serve, to give. That's our calling, and that should be good enough for us, and anything outside of that will be identified while you're going. God's going to put a passion in your heart. He's going to put desires. He's going to open doors. He's going to call you to something. You think I just showed up here one day and said, hey, I think I want to be a pastor. Can you guys let me preach sometime? They'd think I was nuts, right? I, I never applied for this job, just so you know. This, just, this is God working in, in a fool's life. Plain and simple. But I lived for him for the last 15 years of my life after 11 years of faking religion. And so the Lord will use us in those those purposes, in that process, and he will put us in places and he will give us an audience with people that other people might not be able to reach. Because ultimately it's all about the kingdom, it's not about you. And so, we cry out, Validate me, Lord. Make me feel important, Lord. I want to be known. I want to be admired. And there's a lot of ministries that are built on these things. And the problem with those ministries is that we are given something so much more valuable, something so much more greater in Jesus. See, what the world says to all of us before we came to Christ, many of us, most of us, heard failure, loser. And what Jesus says is you're more than a conqueror. Right? The world called us broken. Jesus says you're being made whole. We felt hopeless. He made us hopeful. Right? The world or people call us a lost cause, but he calls us chosen. Maybe we were an addict. He says you're a new creation. Maybe you were lost. Well, guess what Jesus says? You're saved. You're mine. You have a purpose and now you have a place. And that should be more than enough for all of us. The world calls us crazy. Crazy. And that one I can't defend because you're all nuts. But I'm going to say this. An identity based on success, popularity, and power is a false identity. It's an illusion. C.S. Lewis says, don't let your happiness depend on something you may lose. Because all of those things are temporary. Loudly and clearly, the scriptures state this. They say, you are a child of God, and there is no greater title or identity available in this world. No greater title. The Christian life is the process of bringing our sense of self, our egos, and our personal ambitions into alignment with this fundamental truth. We are no longer our own. We've been bought at a price. And so we are image bearers now of the living God. We need to ask ourselves, am I a good image bearer? How am I doing with this, Lord? See, you might be asking this, how this all works into this story of of Acts chapter 4, What we see is two men who were radically changed by the gospel. See, they had been with Jesus, and it was evident. It impacted their lives deeply. They embraced this new identity as Christians. The Greek word Christianos literally means follower of Christ. Later in Acts 11, when Barnabas brings Paul to Antioch, we see that that title was given to his disciples. It says they were first called Christians in Antioch. Not because they name themselves, but because other people identify them as such. When we start to name and claim titles of our own, what does that even mean? It's the world recognizing we follow Christ. They are calling us this. So how are you recognized? Is, it evidence that you, is there evidence in your life that you've been with Jesus? Do people see more him and less you, or is it the other way around? Are they more aware of your religion, what you stand for, what you don't stand for, what you hate, or how you live as a Christianos? We do not find our true self by seeking it. Rather, we find it by seeking, serving, and living obediently to God. Peter and John were doing just that that day. And because of that, they were ready for this moment that had been appointed and arranged by God long before they were around because they were living in their identity as Christ followers. They were willing to set aside their agenda in that moment and let go of what was good for something greater that impacted the kingdom in a powerful and profound way. And so in Matthew chapter seven, it says this, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Very logical. What's in you? Counterfeit fruit will soon be found out, so we need to truly surrender ourselves at the altar of self-image church. The only way to bear authentic fruit of the Spirit is to die to self, surrender to the will of God, and embrace our identities as his children. It is then and only then that people were recognized that we've been with Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. I'm going to offer you all a, a call to repentance this morning, because we all need it. I'm going to go to Psalm 51. It's my favorite psalm. David writes this after his whole incident with Bathsheba, after he messed up big. But it's just important for us to continuously repent, to live in a state of repentance. As we hear this message today, I know our identities have been muddled a little bit, haven't they? I know that we're not all living for Christ as Christianos, as we should be. And so let's read this. It says, be gracious to me, O God. Why don't we bow our heads, close our eyes, just just hear the words of David says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, Lord, and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. So purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice and hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. And do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. How do you want to be recognized, church? When people walk away from you, when they have an encounter with you, do you want them to recognize the Christ in you or a lesser self-produced image? See, there are, all, there are things that we all need to repent of and surrender this morning. And so as always, the altar is open. And so my challenge is to live ready.